Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 17. 28 people volunteer for the Citizens Patrol teams, not including Naya, Jalil, and his friend, Poke. The volunteers' bravery impressed David. If he had been in their shoes... He would have been tempted to leave town before dark, an option that, judging from the comments he had overheard during the meeting, more than a few people had picked. That's the smart option. Like, why do I want it? What? You want me to fight and die? <laughs> Nigga, my cousin lives three towns over. Why? What? No. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the Superdome. Fuck it. I'm going to New Orleans. I'll be back after y'all finish this. It's it's Labor Day. Why the fuck? What? Get the fuck out of my face. Naya had come to the front of the sanctuary to stand beside him. Before Yo daddy was called to do this. I wasn't called to do this. Yo daddy was called to do this. The pastor said so. I ain't got to do none of this shit. I'm going. Nigga, I'm going to California. Ain't no vampires in California as far as I know. Fuck y'all niggas. Naya had come to the front of the sanctuary to stand beside him. Before the chief had called David to come forward, Naya had returned to the church and told him what had happened at the house. He hated that Morgan had gotten away, but he was grateful that Naya and her mother were not hurt. It could have been much worse. Naya was sure that Morgan would resurface later, and he agreed. They would have to stay alert for him. David directed the group to sit in the pews nearest the altar so he could speak to them without using the microphone. The people were mostly between the ages of 20 and 60, but there was a nearly equal number of men and women, a nice balance. He gave the volunteers more details about the vampires they were dealing with, explaining the distinction between pure vampires such as Kyle and Diallo and lower-level creatures such as the vampiric dogs and mutant people, the Valdue. He told them how guns could temporarily slow the monsters, but only fire could destroy them. He was pleasantly surprised when one of the volunteers, a bald white man named Mac who owned a grocery store, announced that he had a flamethrower in working condition. Part of my collection, Mac said with a wink. I'm a retired sergeant, United States Marine. Everyone else, in addition to having a gun or knife, will be given a plastic water gun filled with a flammable mixture and a book of matches. They would have a supply of Molotov cocktails, too. David organized the volunteers into seven groups of four members each. They would distribute a two-way handheld radio to each team. 
The assignments followed. One team will patrol the hospital, where the infected people will be quarantined. The second team will patrol the east side of town. The third group will handle the west side, the fourth team the south side, the fifth team will watch the north side. The sixth group was an emergency response team that will be stationed at police headquarters and will provide backup as needed. Against Jalil's wishes, Jackson placed his son and his kid's friend on the backup team. The seventh and final team would assist David, Naya, and Chief Jackson on a mission to Jubilee. David was sure to include the war vet who owned the flamethrower in this group. Instead of waiting for the vampires to strike, they plan to take the initiative against Diallo and Kyle. So we're the suicide team, Unmember joked, and no one laughed. Because that shit ain't funny, dog. What you ain't gonna do is be out here if you're gonna be out here complaining. And see, because I knew I'd be out there complaining, that's why I'm sitting here with y'all at the Superdome. I'm I'm not to quote the Caucasian poetess Madonna, I'm not sorry. It's human nature. I'm not your bitch. Don't put your shit on me. I didn't get bit. We'll be checking in with one another every hour, David said. At 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll regroup at the police station. Plan on staying up all night. Take some no-dos, drink some coffee or Mountain Dew, do whatever you have to do to stay awake. We have to stay alert. You won't believe how fast these vampires and these dogs can move. None of us can afford to lose our edge. But let me tell you what the hardest thing will be, David said. It's going to be fighting someone. Maybe hurting someone that you know who has become a vampire. It could be your spouse, your child, your parent, your best friend. If you're put in this situation, you have to remember that the one you love who's now a vampire, they don't exist anymore. You're seeing a monster that only looks like the person you remember. You must absolutely remember that and be strong. It won't be easy, but you have to protect yourselves. The volunteers nodded, their faces grim. David looked at Jackson, and the chief gave him the OK sign. If you're bitten, you must let your team members know, David said. You'll be taken to the hospital and quarantined, and we'll find someone to take your place. He was quiet for a moment, checking everyone's faces to make sure his words sank in. Does anyone have any questions, David said. If so, fire away. Pardon the pun. We don't have much time until nightfall. I've got a question, a young man in an oil-stained t-shirt said. Is killing these bloodsuckers the first option or the last resort? David looked at Jackson, then at the young man. Unfortunately, I think it's the first option. Once a human is changed into a vampire, they're lost to us. We haven't found a way to turn them back. We have to do what's necessary for the greater good of the town. How long does it take for someone to become a vampire after being bitten? A woman asked. We don't know exactly, David said. So far, it seems to take at least 16 hours. If the bite comes from the master vampire, though, it takes only minutes. That's why anyone who gets bitten is dangerous to be around, and that's why we have to get victims in a quarantine ASAP. A middle-aged black man with an afro and dressing a dashiki raised his hand. Why did this happen here, brother? This is a small, peaceful town full of God-fearing folks. Why here? I don't know, David said. 
I guess that's how life works sometimes. Ordinary people are called to do extraordinary things. When we beat these monsters, think of all the people we'll save in the long run. It seems to me that if a town is called on to beat back an evil force, that town will need to be full of good, brave folks. So I can turn around your question to ask, why not here? Naya smiled at him, and so did many of the volunteers. After answering a few questions about logistics, they wrapped up the meeting. Jackson led them into a conference room, where they had stored the team's supplies in duffel bags on a large table. Jackson distributed one bag to each team. Each contained a radio, a loaded handgun, extra ammunition, a knife, a flashlight, a roll of duct tape, four plastic water pistols filled with flammable fluids, four glass bottles full of the same lethal mixture, a box of wooden matches, and a first aid kit. David and Naya had purchased most of the items from a Walmart in South Haven. Jackson donated the firearms from his personal collection and the police department's arsenal. Well, at this point, isn't he the police department? Feels like I'm back in Nam, Max said. He chomped on a cigar. I knew some weird crap was going on in this town. I could feel it in my blood. I can't wait to fire up old Susie again. Old Susie, David said. My flamethrower, Max said. Saved my ass plenty of times. David could not resist smiling. My friend, I'm glad you're on my team tonight. We'll need all the firepower we can get. Matt grinned around a cigar. The teams left the church. The members will return to their respective homes to pick up any essential items and will later rendezvous at their assigned posts. David's team agreed to meet in front of the police station in 30 minutes, at 7.15, about an hour before sunset. Plenty of time to take care of business at Jubilee, he hoped. How are you feeling? David asked Naya as they left the church and crossed the parking lot to his SUV. They were amongst the last to leave. Jackson and his son had left in the patrol car. Inside the church, Reverend Brown and his staff prepared for the all-night service. Honestly, Naya said, I've never been so scared in my life. Fear is good. It'll keep us alert. I think we got a long night ahead of us. But if we find Diallo and Kyle at the Mason place, we can end this early. I hope we do, he said, but it will seem almost too easy to find them there. Maybe I'm being a pessimist. Sorry. You're only being realistic. We have to be prepared for anything. He started up the truck and pulled out of the parking lot. He would swing by the house to pick up King and to get everything he needed for later. Thick gray-black clouds mantled the sky, giving the false impression that twilight had already arrived. A stiff wind buffeted the vehicle, and the sour odor of an imminent rain permeated the air. The thunderstorm is going to hit soon, Naya said. The timing couldn't be any worse. I know, he said. I wonder how Franklin's doing. I'm afraid to find out. I'll call. Naya punched a number into her cell phone. David's heart pounded. Naive hope tugged at him. He wanted to believe the vampires did not exist at all, and that it was a curable virus, and all they needed to do was discover an effective treatment. Ruby. It's Naya, she said. How's he doing? David clutched the steering wheel. Oh, he's sleeping, Naya said. He hasn't been awake since this morning? I guess that's good news, considering what we were expecting.
Nia chatted with Ruby for a couple more minutes, murmured words of comfort, then ended the call. Maybe our theory about how long it takes to change to a vampire was wrong, Nia said. Franklin was bitten over 24 hours ago. Maybe, David said. Or maybe he's waiting. Waiting? Remember what Pearl told us? She said Diallo will launch an attack on the town. If that's what he's going to do, it will make sense for him to keep his troops quiet until he's ready to go to war. Then suddenly hit us with everything he's got. Aren't you just full of optimism? Come on, David. Be encouraged. He shrugged. Sorry. I'm just trying to consider this from Diallo's viewpoint. He's not a mindless brute. He's a warrior. He's going to have a strategy. We have to keep that in mind. Pearl warned us not to underestimate him. Ever. Naya was silent. She knew he was right. But he took no pleasure in being correct. He yearned to be an optimist in these circumstances, to believe that it was not going to be as bad as they thought, but to do so would be to ignore the cold dread that twisted his stomach into knots. The dread that they were going to face a horror that was worse than what they imagined. The dread that their well-laid plans were going to prove worthless. The dread that, by sunrise, all of them would be dead. Junior was a member of the patrol team assigned to the hospital. Before he reported to his post, he went home to pick up something he wanted to have with him during his watch. As he pedaled across the road on his old Roadmaster bicycle, he kept on the lookout for any monster dogs and vampires. He didn't see any, but night was coming soon. He was frightened of what was going on in the town, but he felt sort of responsible. He and Andre, after all, had dug open the cave and let those vampires out. They hadn't known any better at the time they'd done the job, but that didn't mean they weren't responsible. Junior was obligated to volunteer for the patrol team. Andre was too, but Junior was sure that his cousin was somewhere getting high. Junior didn't find it hard to believe in vampires. He'd seen the man in black, and he didn't seem like a normal man at all. Plus, Chief Jackson said vampires were real, and that was good enough for Junior. The Chief was a smart man. Pa's rusty four was parked beside the trailer. Junior sat down his bike beside the steps. He noticed a green flyer tucked underneath the door. He picked it up and went inside. The only light came from the small television. Pa was sprawled in the lumpy recliner, his head tilted back, mouth lolling open. His snores made the thin walls tremble. Cans of coarse beer stood on the end table, six cans arranged in a pyramid. Pa had a strange habit of stacking up empty cans in weird structures and would pitch a fit if Junior moved them. Of course, Pa was drunk, as usual. Junior wondered whether he should wake up his father and tell him what was going on. He decided against it. Pa was impossible to talk to when he had been drinking, and Junior was in a hurry. He went to his tiny bedroom and dug underneath the bed. He pulled out an old cigar box. Inside the box, wrapped in velvet, gleamed a silver locket on a necklace. Mama had given it to him before she died. Opening the locket revealed a black and white photo of his mother when she was a young woman. Junior never wore the necklace because he was always working outdoors and didn't want to lose it or get it dirty. If he had a job in a nice clean office, he wore the locket every day. He slipped the necklace over his head and tucked the pendant under his t-shirt. 
treasuring the feel of the cool jewelry resting against his heart. He was ready. He was about to leave the trailer when he turned and looked at Pa. Would Pa wake up before morning? What if a vampire came for him while he slept? It wasn't right to leave his father there, alone, with no information at all. Junior had put the green flyer on the kitchen counter. The flyer talked about the health emergency in Mason's Corner and announced the town meeting. It didn't say anything about vampires, but it did have a phone number listed as an emergency hotline. Junior found a pen, underlined the number, and wrote call beside it in his shaky handwriting. He placed the flyer in a spot where Pa was certain to see it, inside the refrigerator, on top of a six-pack of cores. It would be the first place Pa would look as soon as he woke. Junior locked the door, then hopped on his bicycle and left to do his work at the hospital. The special mission team, as Chief Jackson had come to think of it, gathered in the parking lot of the police station promptly at 7.15. The 16, the backup group, which included Jalil, was inside headquarters, sitting tight and handling phone calls. Five minutes ago, Jackson had talked to Dr. Hess Green via cell phone. Although the doctor had every right to be upset with Jackson for how he had initially lied about what was happening in Mason's Corner, Green had put aside his anger and was doing an efficient job of picking up the ill. The doctor and his two assistants had taken six individuals to the hospital and had three left to transport. Factoring in the nine people who had already been admitted to the medical center, that would bring the total of bitten people to 18. 18 potential vampires. Sweet Jesus. Those are only the ones we know about, too, he reminded himself. Not everyone in town had attended the meeting. And even amongst those who attended, he was sure that some of the people had declined to write the name of an ill person on the list. Jackson's confession about vampires notwithstanding, some people in town were suspicious of authority and anything that smacked the government intervention. They would keep their sick at home and care for them in secret and would not realize their mistake until it was too late. One of the toughest truths of serving in law enforcement was that no matter how hard he worked, he could not save everybody. Sometimes you showed up at the scene too late to prevent a tragedy. Other times, you didn't receive a crucial tip until the damage had been done. Often, the victims themselves were participants in their own demise, refusing to call police when they most needed to, or ignoring the helpful advice that you gave them. Accepting that he could not save the world had been a difficult lesson for Jackson to digest. But once he did, his life got much easier. Nevertheless, at a time like this, he wished he could impose martial law for the town's own good. And wouldn't that move win him favor when time came for his annual performance review? The county sheriff and the mayor had already reprimanded him for his ridiculous speech at the church and made it clear that if the shit hit the fan, he was going to take the heat. But interestingly, they did not intervene. Jackson understood why. They were scared shitless and wanted him to do the dirty work. He didn't mind. He wanted them to stay out of his way. He wanted his loved ones out of the way, too. After the meeting, he had asked Belinda Moss to leave town for a few days, for her own safety, and she had agreed to stay with her brother in Memphis. As for Jalil, he had assigned him to the backup team stationed at the police headquarters. He hoped his son stayed put and didn't try to be a hero. Why didn't you send your son with Belinda? Like, this would be a good time for you to introduce the two of them to one another. You know, 
and then ship his ass off. I know he wants to be a hero, but you want him to be alive, right? Ship his ass off. David came up to Jackson. Jackson was more impressed with the kid at every turn. He had handled himself well when pulling together the citizen defense teams, guiding them with calm authority. Jackson had heard from his own father that the hunters were some tough bastards, and this one here was making good on the family reputation. Looks like everyone's here, David said. He looked at the dimming sky. Night sure is coming fast. I don't like the look of those clouds either, Jackson said. Thunderstorm's going to hit soon. There were seven of them on the team. Jackson liked to think it would be lucky for him. The team included himself, David and Naya, Old Mac, the grocery store owner and war vet, Tanya Lester, who coached volleyball and taught physical education at the high school, Ben Jones, a thick body construction worker, and Bertha Clark, a square-shouldered middle-aged woman who worked as a security guard at a casino in Tunica. A nice mix of folks. The mood was jovial. They milled between the cars, chatting and joking. They might have been a bunch of friends on their way to bowling league night. Jackson had a good idea of why they were so upbeat. They were psyching themselves up for the horrible job that lay ahead of them. Time for us to round up, Jackson said to David. He walked to the center of the group. The friendly chatter ceased, everyone's face suddenly serious. Folks, it's time for us to do what we came together to do, Jackson said. Got about an hour of daylight left. Not a lot of time, but enough. Everyone ready? Yes, sir, they said in unison. Old Mac saluted Jackson. Mac owned a Dodge Ram pickup truck. Jackson asked him if all of them could pile inside the truck, and Mac was happy to oblige. Everyone except for me and Hunter climb up in Mac's truck, Jackson said. Put our equipment in there, too. Hunter and I are going to lead the way in my patrol car. The crew loaded the duffel bags and weapons in the cargo area of the pickup and then climbed in. Two people inside the cab and the other three sitting on the flatbed. Jackson and Hunter got in the cruiser. The two-vehicle caravan pulled out of the parking lot and on the main street, heading east toward the Mason place. Side note, how old were you when you found out that it was illegal to sit on the flatbed of a truck while it was driving? Because when we were kids, we begged my grandpa to let us sit on the back of the truck. We just thought that was a place to be. We didn't know. We just sat back there and chilled and it was great. And You don't see that anymore. I figure it's illegal or somebody fell out or something like that. But yeah, I think about that sometimes. Also, I don't own a truck. I don't need to. I'm not moving. Need to talk to you about something. That's why I wanted you to ride up with me, Jackson said. He was figuring out how to work his way into this discussion. He was about to ask Hunter a favor he had never asked of anyone. What's up, David said. Jackson spoke carefully. Got an idea about why you came to our town in the first place. You're looking to learn about your daddy. A reasonable thing for a boy to want to know. Am I right? I don't know where you're going with this, but yeah, you're right. That's why I moved here. I got a point to make. Hang on. What I'm getting at is, you understand how important it is for a father and his boy to have a good relationship. Ain't nothing like a strong bond between a father and son. Even if a boy ain't had the benefit of a decent relationship with his daddy, one day, he'll usually wish he had. Know where I'm coming from? 
Too well, David said. Pain flickered in his eyes. Jackson had yanked a nerve. Jackson returned his attention on the road. My boy and I, we don't get along too well. Cancer took my wife a couple years ago, and things ain't been the same with the since. Can't figure out what I'm doing wrong. He'd rather hang out with his knucklehead friends and spend a minute with me. Grade's been low. He don't want to work nowhere. I try to talk to him, and it don't do any good. A lot of teenage boys go through that phase, David said. He'll grow out of it. Maybe he will, if someone's around to catch him when he stumbles every now and then, Jackson said. But if ain't nobody there for him, no telling what could happen. In my line of work, I see what happens to young men who ain't got no guidance. I don't get it, David said. You're here for your son, even though he doesn't appreciate it right now. But you'll be there when he needs you. That's what I'm getting to. Listen, I don't know you that well, but I'm a damn good judge of character. You're a good man, Hunter. I might be out of line asking you this but I ain't got no one else I can ask. My family's scattered around here and there, and we don't really talk much. What do you want me to do? David said. Jackson's hands tightened on the steering wheel. If I don't get through the mess we're trying to do here, I want you to look out for my son. I'm not asking you to be his daddy, but a friend, a big brother. Check on him sometimes. He's going to need somebody like you around, Hunter. He doesn't know it yet, but he will. His eyes thoughtful. David gazed out the window. They rode in silence for a minute. Okay, David said. If it comes to that, and I hope to God it doesn't, I'll do it. Appreciate it. Jackson's grip relaxed on the steering wheel, and he enjoyed a momentary sense of relief. The tension returned, but for a different reason, when his car began to climb the steep hill on the eastern edge of town. Ahead, at the crest of the rise, Jubilee loomed. Is it only me, or does that house look bigger? David said. It ain't only you. I feel it too. That's fear talking to us, Hunter. Frightening things look bigger sometimes. Makes you feel sort of like a kid again, doesn't it? They turned onto the road that ran in front of the property. When Jackson and Jalil had left this place a few hours ago, the dude's patrol car had been stuck in a ditch. The car was gone. A crazy image, disturbingly vivid, flashed through Jackson's mind. The dude, his face pale and bloodless, dragging himself to the vehicle, getting in and cruising around town, fangs dripping with saliva, clawed hands flexing on the steering wheel. Cut it out. Pearl said the dude was dead. He looked around. Then he saw the deputy's cruiser. It was parked near the mansion. What the hell? Who had moved the car? Frowning, he parked on the shoulder of the road. Mac parked behind him. The wind harried the surrounding trees. Distantly, thunder grumbled. Be careful getting out, Jackson said. Remember those dogs I told you about? Gotcha. Jackson checked to ensure that his three fifty seven was loaded. Then he climbed out the car. It was time to roll. David's impression that Jubilee looked larger was not a temporary illusion. The mansion genuinely appeared to have grown bigger since he had last seen it, like a magical evil castle in a fairy tale. 
the rooftop seemed to pierce the underbelly of the stormy sky. The house looks huge, doesn't it? Naya said when she got out of Mac's truck. You know, I really hope you're able to read my mind like this when this is over, he said. Together, the team unloaded the cargo from the pickup's flatbed. Mac strapped the handheld flamethrower across his shoulders. The fuel-filled cylinder tanks waited on his back. Back at the station, Mac had taught David how to use the flamethrower. There was always a possibility that Mac would be injured, or worse, during their mission, and David thought it was a good idea for someone else to understand how to wield the powerful weapon. Each team member carried a handgun. Jackson had made sure that each person on this crew would be armed. They took the water guns, too, holstering them in their pants. I feel like I'm in a horror flick, Ben said. He winked at Tanya, the gym teacher. I've been told that I favor Wesley Snipes, you know. Then you woke up, Tanya said. They laughed. No more time for jokes, Bertha Clark said. It's getting dark. I don't want to be in there at night. Then let's hurry and hammer out our plan of approach, David said. He was getting antsy, too. It was already a quarter to eight, and the thickening blanket of storm clouds was another ominous sign. They congregated on the side of the road, opposite the estate's iron gates. How do we want to take down this shithole, Max said. I'll take the point, because I got old Susie here and don't none of you want to get in her way. Everyone else can follow after me. How about we send a scout to check out the place, Ben said. Bad idea, Jackson said. We lost my deputy that way. I let nobody go up there alone. The deputy went inside through a door on the side or the back of the house, according to Jalil, David said. He never came out. I vote that we go through the front door. Some of the other doors might lead into traps. Once we get inside, we'll split up and go floor by floor. All right, Jackson said. Let's move, folks. Here we go, David thought. We're moving past the point of no return. David pushed open the gate. He motioned for Mac to enter first. Everyone else filed in behind him. They walked on the gravel lane that twisted toward the house. David and I were side by side. Ben and Tiny were paired together, and Jackson and Bertha brought up the rear. There's dog shit all over the place. Ben wrinkled his nose. Sure am glad I wore my work boots. I should have brought a gas mask, though. Large, stinking clumps of excrement littered the yard and the path. But other than the crap, there was no sign of the vampiric dogs. Dense shadows lurked under the trees, and the area was silent, the only sound the blowing of the wind, the faraway rumble of thunder, and their footsteps crunching through gravel. I'm doing the very thing I said I'd never do again, Naya said, close to David. Going back to this place. Her hands gripped the gun so tightly, it seemed like her veins would burst. They passed under the bow of the giant tree from which, according to Franklin's history lesson, Edward Mason had been hung by his slaves and left to swing in the wind. A chill chugged through David. A police car was parked at the end of the driveway. Dried mud streaked the fenders, tires, and doors. My deputy's car, Jackson said, was stuck in the ditch by the road back there earlier today. I don't know who in the hell moved it up here. He peered through a window. Ain't nothing out of the ordinary in there. Let's keep on. 
David noted that the Lexus SUV was gone. Did that mean anything? They trudged forward. Max set his boot on the sagging veranda step. We should burn down this place, Naya said. There's no reason to go inside. Just burn it down. I wish we could, David said. But no, we can't. Not yet. They ascended the short flight of porch stairs and huddled outside the door. Dead leaves and branches covered the veranda's hardwood floor. Vines of kudzu twined around the thick white columns. David picked out the column against which his father leaned when he took the photograph. In spite of everything he learned since he found the picture in the living room, he wasn't much closer to understanding his father. He wondered whether it mattered anymore. The front door of the mansion was like the entrance to a vault. Here goes nothing, Max said. He twisted the doorknob. The door creaked open like a parody of every haunted house that had ever existed in a movie. A wall of blackness greeted them. They turned on their flashlights and stepped inside. They were at the mouth of a long hallway. A spiral staircase is on the right, the ornate wooden railing dressed in cobwebs. On the left, an arched doorway led into a sitting room full of old upholstered furniture. Melted white candles were spaced throughout the hallway and the rooms. The stench of rotted wood and mildew clouded the air. Underneath these odors, David detected faintly the coppery scent of blood. His stomach tightened. Hey, there's a tape player up here. Mac indicated a device sitting on a wooden table in the hallway. He shone his flashlight over it. It was a small cassette recorder housed in black casing. There's a note on here. It says, play me. Go ahead, David said. Mac pressed the play button. David and the others crowded closer. Static crackled from the speaker. Then came the crisp, slightly accented voice of Kyle, the vampire. Good evening, David Hunter and friends. My father and I have foreseen that it would not be long before you and your crew of intrepid adventurers made an expedition to our temporary residence. We have grown tired of the visits by your meddlesome kin, and have therefore found another sanctuary. Ah, David Hunter, my dear mother has built a fence around you. But my father grows more powerful with each passing hour, and when he makes himself known to the world tonight, even my ancient mother will not be able to protect you from my father's fury. Nor my fury, I might add. Your ancestors shut my father away from me for all of my life. And for that, you are responsible and bear the burden of your ancestors' trespass against us. We promise you a fate worse than death. And Nia James, how endearing that you're standing by your man. But I decide to seek a vampire bride, and you will be a fine choice. Consider it carefully, my lady, or follow your doomed man to his demise. Chief Van Jackson, finally shaking off the crippling fear, have you? I reached inside your puny brain before, and shaped it as a sculptor manipulates clay. To do so again would be simple, but that would be too gentle a punishment for you. We have something better in mind. Make provisions for your son, we advise. To all of you, you will not defeat us. My father lived as a mighty warrior in Africa during his time as a man. And since then, his prowess in battle has advanced to greater heights than your mortal minds can fathom. Your wisest course of action would be for you to leave this town. But that would provide only a temporary respite, I must caution. 
Mason's Corner is only the beginning for us, the launch pad of a bold mission that will carry us around the world. By the way, before you leave the premises, please visit the cellar. In our absence, one of your friends would enjoy the pleasure of your company. We eagerly anticipate meeting you tonight. Until then, adieu. Trembling, David shut off the cassette recorder. Jackson and I looked furious. The faces of the others were taut with resolve. To the basement, David said. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, leave a review on Podchaser, copy that, paste it in the Apple Podcast, copy that, paste it in the Good Pods. Um, donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast, uh, com slash sscast, and on Good Pods, you can go to the tip jar and leave a tip there on the app. So somebody told me to go down to the basement because they left to surprise me. Why the fuck would I go downstairs? If my brother tells me, if you go downstairs, I'm going to punch you in the face. Guess what? I'm going to stay upstairs. So, no, I'm not going to the basement, David. Y'all go ahead and go. I'm going to stay right here. We need to have backup here in the hallway. I'll do that. I'm good with that. Also, um, Chief Jackson Asking David to, you know, look out for his boy and support his boy and all that kind of stuff. Again, you could have told Belinda what was going on instead of just beating around the bush and being like, yo, take my son with you. And y'all start to build that relationship. That way, if I die, y'all have that relationship. I know that this whole book is about father issues and this whole book is about uh, needing to have a dad in your life. But. Mm. Okay. Anyhow, thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, did you say?